You know, today is uh, Father's Day. I'm not going to speak about fathers as such. I'm not going to speak even about the fatherhood of God. But I am going to speak about God, who is the source of all fathering. It says in Ephesians 3, it says this in verse 14 and 15. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. God is the father of the whole universe. He is the head of all things. He is over all things. And that's the theme of my subject this morning. And that's an awesome theme, and it's quite an imposing theme. And I don't necessarily feel, in a funny sort of way, confident. It's not because of something silly, just an insecurity in myself, but... The, the magnitude of what we're taking on when we spend half an hour, 40 minutes looking at our God, the Father of all, the ruler over all. So I'm going to pray because there's also an element of spiritual battle over a subject like this. The devil doesn't like it. So I'm going to pray that God will help us to concentrate. You will need to concentrate this morning. You need to have your thinking caps on. Um, this is not a little bless me, everything's all right in the garden word. This is about our God, and I'm trying, I don't want to make it too intellectual, but I don't want to do you and God a disservice by ignoring some of the challenges it contains. But my goal by the end of our time is that our faith has risen, and we are just lost in wonder, love and praise at our God. So let's pray. Father in heaven, our Father in heaven, we do love you, and we do want to serve you well this morning. Lord, we want to understand you more than we have before. We ask that you would graciously send your Holy Spirit, your presence with us, would help us to have revelation, that our eyes would be opened, our ears would be unstopped, we would receive truth. And we pray, Lord, that as we hear your word, faith will come. You've promised us faith comes by hearing the word. Well, we want to have faith today. We want to grow in our faith. Want to also, Lord, be more profound in our worship, more stirred in our hearts. Please be with us and help us. Lord, take away every distraction. Sovereign God, bind every demon that would distract us. Choke the life out of anything that would take from your glory this morning. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you turn, please, with me to... uh, 1 Chronicles 29 and verse 10. So I'll give you a moment to find that. 1 Chronicles 29 verse 10. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O Lord God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. 
Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. Hallelujah. That's the tradition we stand in. (laughs) That is the God we worship. That is our prayer and praise as well. This is our brother from 3,000 years ago. We will meet him in heaven. The church, Old and New Testament, the people of God, praise the one true living God who is the ruler of all things. The ruler of all things. The one true living God has absolute authority and rule over every detail of the universe. God, and only God, is in control of all things. Now, events in creation are not determined by chance. They're not random, as we so frequently say. I've been guilty of saying that myself. It's quite a slightly modern phrase, isn't it? Oh, what a random thing to happen. Now, it's okay to use language like that in a casual way, like you say something is cool when you don't, we're not referring to the temperature. So, we, I'm not being pedantic here, but actually, we do need to understand that things are not random. Actually, they're not ruled by fate either, which is another popular misconception, which is a sort of determinism in actual fact, that, you know, there is a sort of fate An impersonal fate that decides things. That's not true. Events in creation are determined by the living God, who is the personal yet infinitely powerful creator of all things. He determines things. And a truly free person is one who knows and accepts and trusts in the sovereignty of God. That is true freedom, to know, to accept and trust in the sovereignty of God. Now, God's sovereignty is defined as this, the exercise of his power and will over all creation. The exercise of his power and his will over all creation. Even the laws of nature are not laws to God. The laws of nature, the laws of science do not function independently from God. They operate in harmony and in accord with his will. You might say they are simply the way God ordinarily does things. What we call laws are how he usually operates. He is perfectly able to alter and vary what we call natural laws in our physical universe. And he will and does do it in accordance with his will and purpose on occasions. When he does that, we use the term miracle for when he does it. But actually, gravity is as much of an act of God as was the parting of the Red Sea. God is in complete control of both. Active, hands-on control of gravity and the parting of the Red Sea. He's in complete control, active, hands-on control of the movement of the planets and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God is in complete control of both and he is acting actively in both. God is absolutely sovereign. He is an absolute ruler. He has no rivals and he tolerates no rivals. Nebuchadnezzar learnt this and when he learnt it, it marked a return of his sanity. It is a mark of sanity to understand that God is God 
and is in control of things. I will just read you what Nebuchadnezzar said from Daniel 4, 34 and 35. You needn't turn to it. It's one of the many things that might take us a little too long. But do listen. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now that is an awesome truth that finally clicked in Nebuchadnezzar's mind and brought him sanity in the insanity of his own obsession with his own power and his own so-called independence, that he was like a little god. And it drives us insane. It's driving our culture insane. I'm going to refer to that in a moment. When we think like this, that we are God. We decide everything. It's all up to us. My choice is everything. Now, actually, Nebuchadnezzar was in that madness until he realised that God is God. And no one can say to him, what have you done? God's will is the final and ultimate reason for everything that happens. God's will is the final and ultimate reason for everything that happens. Listen to Ephesians 1 verse 11. God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Just let that sink in. God works out everything. Apparently that could be literally translated, God continues to bring about continually, I beg your pardon, God continually brings about everything in the universe in accordance with the counsel of his will. God continually is acting according to the counsel of his will. We're told in Revelation and elsewhere in the Bible, everything was created by God's will. We're told that human government is ultimately subject to the will of God. That comes out in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, such as Romans 13, verse 1. All the events connected with the death of the Lord Jesus Christ were according to God's will. Let me just read you that one. Acts 4, 27, 28. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. So that's all the human activity going on. We're going to kill him. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. That's Acts 4, verses 27 and 28. Human activity, overridden, overruled, Behind it all, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. James, the writer in the New Testament, encourages us to see all the events of our lives, now hear this because it's practical, all the events of our lives as being subject to the will of God. Let me read you James 4, verses 13 to 15. Now listen You who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. That's how we plan, isn't it? We're going to go there, we're going to move here, we're going to make a move here, we're going to make money, we're going to carry on business, make a career change. Listen, says James, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will... We will live and do this or that. In other words, you need to be very conscious. You are under the sovereign rule of God. If it's the Lord's will, 
This is no little, I mean, I was brought up in a church where people would clip that on as a little cliche. You know, God willing, I've used it myself. It's not unreasonable to do that. It's good to remind us, it's not a bad thing to do. But this is quite a profound aspect of our life rather than a little cliche. That actually our lives are under the Lord's will. We don't say, well, I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do that, then I'm going to plan this, a career move, house move. Hang on. God's will? Let's remember, God is in control. Let's at least work out how we respond to that truth, which I hope we'll get to by the end of what I want to say. Because first and foremost, let's be honest, there is a natural human reaction against this truth. If you're not feeling it already, you've probably felt it in the past. Against the fact that God is ruler of all, against the sovereignty of God, there is a natural human reaction against it. There are several reasons for that. One is that many of the characteristics of God, and some that I looked at in the first two on this mini-series of our awesome God, many of the characteristics of God are beyond our comprehension. His eternity, his self-existence, his total independence from any outside sort of pressure, his triune nature. We could go on. There's many things that we can't understand. They're beyond our experience. But sovereignty is a little different. We do have things that we understand about sovereignty. We understand emperors of old, absolute monarchs. We understand dictators today, perhaps like Hitler or Stalin or Mussolini or even Mugabe. We understand, and it's not a pleasant comparison. It's not something we quite like drawing a parallel with. The idea of someone who is in absolute authority and their will is law. That's one problem we have. Another problem is our hearts. The craving of men and women, fallen men and women, which is where we all were at, and we still struggle with this in a way, our craving is for complete self-rule, complete independence. It's the big thing today, really, if you think about it, in our culture. People will fight to the death to say they're in charge of their own existence. But I want to make a mini digression here, because we need to understand Christian thinking, and that's what we're talking about this morning, Christian thinking... Understanding the sovereignty of God, understanding human responsibility. Christian thinking is the only sane way to think. It's quite insane to have the attitude of our modern world, and it is driving us all stark staring mad. Listen, and you'll see what I mean. People are told and want to believe that they are totally in charge of their own destiny. They make their own choices. You know, I did it my way. I'm a little God. But they fight just as hard to avoid any responsibility for those choices, of what they do. And that is a contradiction, a nonsense. And it is a real issue today. It is a real, moral, philosophical sort of contradiction. That you somehow are totally independent, but you're not responsible. So it comes out in the most odd ways. I am totally free to get blind drunk if I want to. It's my life, I can do what I like. I can drink myself silly. But if when I'm staggering home from the pub, I fall into the river itching, I blame the council for not putting a barrier up there. It wasn't my fault for being a loony, an idiot, and getting drunk. It was their fault that they didn't think that an idiot drunk might fall into the river. And you think I'm exaggerating? It happens all the time. And in fact, if I'm pulled out of the river and I go to A&E and I have to wait more than about four hours, I'm going to sue the government too. And we think that's utterly reasonable, that I'm not responsible for myself. I can do stupid things. 
And the government's responsible, or other people, or who? Oh, the television's full of it every time. It drives me batty. Every time something goes on, you know, we huff and puff. Why did this happen? Oh dear, someone should have thought of that. We've got a barrier, haven't we, down on our railway line down here as you come in off the Badger Farm roundabout. The, coming, the bar- and they built barriers on all these railway bridges, didn't they? Because some idiot fell asleep on his Range Rover and went over a a bankman and had a horrible crash and people died on the train. So suddenly millions of pounds are put out to put barriers so if another idiot goes to sleep because he's been up all night on the internet, it's just totally his fault. He's an idiot. And and we, in case there's another idiot like that, we have to have a barrier on every blooming railway bridge across the country and it costs us about £100 million. Now you might think that I'm exaggerating, I am. You might think it's wise sometimes to do safe things. Of course it is. But there is a philosophical problem here. We, we've lost God's sovereignty. We've lost human responsibility. You think, I'm a little God, but I'm not responsible for anything I do. Well, you can't have it both ways. And it drives you mad. And the, and the way back to sanity is to understand God's way. Amen? That was a digression. Right. <laughs> the, but the problem we have is that this whole business of God's sovereignty does clash with our feeling of autonomy, our asserted independence, our our sort of stated freedom to be the master of our own fate. So we do not like it. And we are encouraged to think that human freedom is, is ultimate and is better than talking about God's sovereignty. But of course, this isn't a new problem. Men and women have rebelled against God's sovereignty since the Garden of Eden. And when you read the book of Genesis, those early three chapters, it actually is very contemporary in many ways. Satan comes to Adam and Eve and he basically questions God's goodness and God's sovereignty. Did God really say that? This is more or less what he says. God is lying. If you do your own thing and ignore his sovereignty, you can be like God. He's holding out on you. And decide your own right and wrong. Now that is as old, literally, as the hills. That is as old as history. And that's still the battle people have today. Perhaps we all have it to a degree. But the fact is, God is sovereign. Because God is God. And we are not. We're not God. He's God. Now we do all struggle with it. I don't want to be insensitive. I struggle with it. Some of the circumstances of life. The big challenge, often, is the concept of a good, sovereign God with the seemingly contradictory presence of evil and suffering in the world. So we say, how can an almighty God uh, allow that? He's either not good or he's not almighty. That's how we tend to think. Now, part of the biblical answer is that God has a hidden, long-term purpose in mind that we can only partially glimpse that there are a lot of things we don't understand. For example, God allows humans to defy him and disobey him and to act against his revealed will without in any way diminishing his sovereignty and while still accomplishing purposes that he has, even accomplishing them through that human disobedience. Now that's quite a tangle in our little brains But that is what the Bible tells us. Good biblical theologians who try and help us to understand these things would break it down like this. Now, these things can be helpful, but they're not necessarily a biblical way of describing them, but they're a biblically based way of trying to understand it. And that sort of theology will talk about God's will in this way. 
they speak of God's a distinction between God's necessary will and God's free will. And what they mean by that is this. God's necessary will is everything God must do or will according to his nature. For example, God cannot choose to be different from what he is. He cannot choose to cease to exist. And you could take that a bit further to do with his holiness and other things. There is a sort of necessary will of God. There's also what we might call the free will of God in that sense. It isn't different wills. It's ways of trying to understand it. And these are the things that God has decided to do, but he had no necessity to do because of his nature, such as create the universe. They also make a distinction, and perhaps this other distinction is quite helpful, between God's revealed will and God's secret will. Now, God's revealed will is what he gives us, what we see and understand, which we are meant to believe, obey, and live in the light of. We are meant to live in the light of God's revealed will. A large part of it is the Bible. It's not the only part, but that is what we live in the light of and we act on. But there is also what we might call, or the theologians call, a secret will of God. Now, this really refers to the hidden decrees by which he governs things beyond our understanding. And our response to his secret will must always be trust and faith. With the secret things belong to God, as it says in Deuteronomy 29, 29. We do not always understand them. Now, there are many examples of a dynamic tension between the revealed will of God and the secret will of God. Now, I could give you several. I'll just give you one biblical example. Both Paul and Peter tell us this, that God wills all people to be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 4, 2 Peter 3, 9. Now, that is a reference to God's revealed will. And probably what it specifically means is this, that God has given a clear command to all men and women everywhere, in every nation and tribe, in every so-called culture and religious group, that the way to be saved is through Jesus Christ and putting faith in him. And God has a desire that they should all hear that and respond to it. God has provided a hope for everyone. And his command is that we preach the gospel to every human being on the planet, whatever their history, whatever their culture, and however long they've been in it. Because the only hope is Jesus Christ, and it's God's desire, his revealed will, that they all hear the gospel, and, yes, potentially, all respond to it. And we live, pray, preach out of God's revealed will. And so we go with conviction to every people. We, with expectation, preach the gospel to them looking for them to make real choices to this real, again, uh, when they hear this real opportunity of salvation. But there is also what we might call God's secret will. And this is touched on just a little in Scripture. For example, I'm going to read to you Matthew 11. This is Jesus preaching. Matthew 11, verses 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. And Jesus said there are some things that seem to be revealed to people and hidden from others. The fact is, not all will be saved. And the revealed will of God, if you like, the revelation of God, shows us that will be a judgment day and not all will go to heaven. 
And the fact is that that doesn't compromise God's heart for men and women, God's ultimate purposes and will. It's not as though his will will not be done. God knows who are his. He knows the mysteries of salvation and he knows the tensions between human choice and his sovereignty, which we'll again touch several times this morning. And God has a secret will, if you like, which we only partially understand, that some have revelation. And when we preach the gospel, we're looking and expecting that eyes will open, but not every eye will open. And yet we live and pray and preach in the light of God's revealed will, conscious of his secret will and in a sense submitted to it. And when we pray, your will be done, and Jesus said, you know, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we're talking about that, what we're really talking about is the revealed will. And if we get this mixed up, we can get a little bit of a tangle. The revealed will of God, we can pray validly and full-bloodedly for it. Your will be done. Lord, you want men and women saved in every part of the planet. I don't even think, well, maybe God doesn't want anybody in Nepal saved. Maybe God doesn't want anybody more saved in Winchester. Maybe they've all been saved now. I don't even think. I don't look at God's secret will. That your will be done. It's not a case sarah sarah thing. You know, well, whatever will be, he's got a secret will. Who, who knows what will happen? That's not what it's meant. It's meant to be active, full-blooded. Lord, you've revealed this. I pray for this sick person. You said we lay hands on the sick and they recover. I'm praying, let your healing will be done. It's an active grasp on what we understand the revealed will of God. But a real believer knows that God is God. <laughs> and it, doesn't, it shouldn't undermine our faith, but it's a, it's a, brings a humility and, and a dependence on God and a leading of God, even in this situation. Are you, what are you saying as I pray for this person? Are you giving me a more refined revelation of how I should respond? Things like that. Don't want to get too complicated. There is no doubt that evil events are not outside of the will of God. And this is a challenge, but it's a challenge we have to face. Evil events are not outside of the will of God. Let me take a moment to say something on this. It is not true that there is evil in the universe that God did not intend. It sort of surprised him. He thought, wow, where did that come from? There is no evil in the universe that is not ultimately under God's control. That must be true. If that was not so, just listen to this, if that was not so, there would be no guarantee that there will not be more and more evil that God does not intend, that is not under his control, and that he doesn't want to happen. We have no assurance that it will ever stop. Also, we have no guarantee that God will be able to use even evil for his good purposes, or even any guarantee that he will triumph over it, or that in the age to come it might all not bubble up again, and we get into heaven and then we go through the fall again and get into trouble all over again. Because actually, it's out of his control. See? You can't go down that road, and it's not a biblical road to go down. The Bible is clear that God is in control of all things, and that actually, as I said, There is not evil in the universe that God did not intend or is not under his ultimate control. But the Bible is also clear that God is not an evil God. He's not a God who does evil. And that actually he 
through Jesus Christ, will bring a total and absolute triumph over all evil in every sense. There will be no evil and suffering in the age to come, and it will not reoccur. A whole, awesome, puzzling, amazing, wonderful and horrible phase of whatever we call it, existence, will come to an end at the great judgment day. And God will have done something good, and his purposes will be seen to be wise and good, and evil will be finished. And it isn't like God might have the problem again, bubbling up somewhere. Okay? And we have to live with that. Now, there are real dangers we need to avoid. It would be wrong to say that God takes pleasure in evil, because he categorically does not. He may use evil for his good purposes, but he never does evil. He is a good God, and there is no darkness in him. It's not dark and light sides, not at all. It would be equally wrong to blame God for sin, rather than blaming men and women, including ourselves. To end up saying, God's sovereign, I'm not responsible for my actions, he made me do it. Again and again, the Bible affirms the reality of our choices and our actions. We really do cause events to happen. You do. Your choices count. What you choose to do has an effect and causes events to happen. We are individually significant and responsible. We have real choices that bring about real results in the real world. That is a a fact of biblical truth. God causes all things to happen, but he does so in a way that amazingly upholds our ability to make willing, responsible choices that have real, eternal results for which we are accountable. You can say, oh, I have a problem with that. Well, you can have a problem with it. That's how it is. And and that's how God has revealed it to be. And the area where we do quite struggle is because God is God and we're not. And it ain't half different from where God is. He's not limited by time and space and all the things I've said before. Remember, we are talking about God. And God has said, you have real choices and your real choices have real results. You're accountable for them. You're responsible for them. But nothing is outside of my control and I am not faced by any of it. And I work in all of it, my good purposes. That is how it is. Amen? Now, that's the God we're dealing with. That's the God we worship. And you know, the Bible does not hesitate to couple those two things together. In the Bible, you will find the two truths in the same verse sometimes. Here's an example. This is in Acts 2 and verse 23. The two truths in the same verse. This is about Jesus being handed over to be crucified. Acts 2, verse 23. This man, obviously Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. Right? Totally valid, consistent statement by the Apostle Peter. Jesus Christ was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And actually the secret will of God became clearer. But there is culpable wickedness by human beings that is totally their fault. They wanted to kill him and they did. And they chose to nail him to a cross and they were not robots and they were not puppets. They were behaving out of their own wicked desires. Genuinely. 
Now, the Bible lives with that all the way through from Genesis to Revelation. We're the ones that have problems, probably a little bit, even in the West, and a little bit, if you want to get really funny, post-Renaissance. And, uh, you know, it's a bit about the way we think, about our scientific, materialistic view of life, and our heightened, refined concentration on logic. And we think we've got it right. We think this is the only way to think. Two plus two must always equal four, and be obvious it equals four. Well, it does equal four in the realms of maths. But if you're talking in the realms of God and the universe, our little brains don't get round it all. But it's true. It was by the foreknowledge and choosing of God. God wasn't at all phased. It was his set purpose that his son would die. It had been prophesied since the Garden of Eden, in effect, about the seed of the woman. But actually, when it happened, there were all sorts of human choices and contingencies right through to the Roman Empire, to the individuals, to Pilate, to the, and they were making real choices in the real world, and they weren't robots, and they weren't puppets. That is how it is for us, too. It is. And we're going to talk about it a bit more as we go on. How do we respond to that? God combines his sovereignty with human responsibility. Now, sometimes we can, because of this little brain thing where we've got to square it all and sort it all out, which we're really big on, particularly in our culture, we can get in a tangle because we keep pushing in to the secret will of God, pretty determined to somehow find an answer. That must be one. You ever tried that? I've tried it many times. So, you do things like this. There must be a reason why God had to make men and women. There must be a reason why God had to allow Satan to do that. Why God had to do this, had to do that. And you can end up pressing into territory that you shouldn't press into. That he had to create the world or whatever. The best position is to humbly and worshipfully say that the final reason why God does anything is basically this. It's God's sovereign free will working in a way consistent with his character. God has always and always will work out of his sovereign free will in consistency with his character. And that is the fundamental bottom line about why he does anything. The fact is God is almighty, possessing all power and authority and able to do as he wills. He can do what he wants to do. But another fact is that God has a good purpose in all he does. And as he governs and directs all things, they go towards accomplishing his purposes. He knows the end from the beginning, and his purposes are ultimately good purposes. Amen? We believe this. So as we come towards the end, don't get too excited, towards the end, what is our reaction to this then. I've unpacked what is an awesome but hard to understand in some ways truth, but it's a truth. What's the effect of this awesome truth on us as Christians? Let me give you a few things. Here's the first one. One, we live our lives in faith knowing this, that what God has promised, he is well able to do. Now you've heard that so often that goes in one ear and out the other. What God has promised, he is well able to do. Let me tell you some of the things he's promised. He's promised to remove your sins as far as the east is from the west, to completely deal with them in the death of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. And if God says he can do that, he can do it. Right? You say, well, that was 2,000 years ago. He didn't know I was going to lie yesterday. But he has been able to do it. God is sovereign. He can do what he's promised to do. He can put you in Christ. 
He can clothe you with the righteousness of Christ. He can put you hidden safely in Christ for eternity. Isn't that good? He can raise you up on the last day and give you a new body. So, oh, I might, by that time, I might have been incinerated in the crematorium. Yep, might have been. So have many others. Oh, I might have rotted into the ground. Yep, might have been. My mum and dad have. They've both been buried many years ago. But my mum and dad love Jesus and they will be raised up on the last day. God can do that. It's not a problem. Their molecules are somewhere, I expect. Or at, I don't know how he's going to do it. Maybe he'll use the new lot of molecules. He makes them in the first place. I don't know what he's going to do. He can do it. And it will be my mum and dad. It will be them. It will be me. I'll be a resurrected John Groves with a new Christ-like, in quality, body. But I'll be recognisable. If John Groves isn't saved, then it's no salvation, is it? It's not me that's saved, then I'm not saved, really. You know, I'm so changed that it's, well, it's hardly worth talking about. Well, that's a new person. But I am a new John Groves. I'm a, that's what Jesus is like in the resurrection. Doesn't that bless you? Now, God can do that. Because God is sovereign. Of course he can do. What he's promised, he can do. Here's the second thing. We trust that God is good and is working out his good purposes in everything. That is an act of faith, but it's an important We understand that not everything that happens is good. You don't say because an evil event is under the will of God, permitted under his will, it must be good. You can think of examples that make that obviously clear. For example, Joseph. His brothers did what was evil, wicked and cruel. When they you know, tried to kill him, threw him in a pit and all the rest of it. If you don't know the story of Joseph, someone will tell you afterwards. Because I know something. But you know, his brothers did nasty things and they were nasty things for which they were rightly condemned And they had to repent and seek forgiveness from Joseph. No question. They meant it for evil. And that was a genuine, nasty meaning. They wanted to do nasty things of their own choice. But we're told God meant it for good. In other words, he used it to accomplish his good purposes. However, the brother's actions should not receive our approval just as they do not receive God's approval. Do you understand that? That you don't say, oh, well, because God meant it for good, it was all right in the end. It was all right, they did what they did. No, it wasn't. It was totally evil. And they rightly are condemned for it and judged for it. And the fact that God meant it for good or used it for good, whatever way you want to use, doesn't in any sense alter that truth. We fight evil, brothers and sisters. We pray against it. We make our choices against it. We live and act in the clear, revealed will of God. We don't say, well, if God turns it for good, maybe it's okay anyway. Oh, you know, I committed adultery. It all worked out. Horrible. No, 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 no. You don't do that. Sin is sin. And God can overrule sometimes and does. In an obvious way, it's always overrules, but in a way we can see. Okay, let's go on quickly. If we believe these truths, we thirdly... Do not let ourselves be ruled by fear. We do not let ourselves be ruled by fear. We know we have a sovereign Lord and a heavenly Father who cares for us, who watches over us, and has all things under his control. All things. Now, I'm not saying that we don't have circumstances that don't make sense to us. We've all experienced that. Probably you might be right now. There are circumstances that don't make sense to us. But we are not in fear 
because we know the sovereign God is our heavenly Father who cares for us and has all things under his control. We keep our faith focus on Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the key revelation of our God. We look at his life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection. In the terms of Hebrews 2, 12, we fix our eyes on Jesus, we consider him, and we press on. Amen? That's what we do. We don't sit there saying, oh, why did that? Look, we pray for healing. We pray for the thing to change. We'll talk about that in a moment. Because how much I want to talk about in a moment. And uh, I'm not going to do it. But, but actual fact, we fix our eyes on Jesus and consider him and we persevere. Not grit teeth, faith. Amen? That's how we do it. Because we believe God is in control. Fourthly, if we believe in this truth, the sovereignty of God, we will be thankful Listen, thankful for all the good things we enjoy in life because we recognize they all come from God's hand. We do not deserve them. They're not just because we're clever, we're good, because we're lucky, we're this, that, all the funny things people use. No, God has blessed us. He's blessed you with that home. The fact you've got food, the fact you live in England, for all its mess, pretty stable, peaceful place to live. God has blessed you in a myriad of ways. And you are thankful to him because you realize they come from God's providential hand in events. But actively, because we have that attitude, we seek his guidance intervention in events. We don't think God's uninvolved in the events of our lives. We don't believe in luck or chance. We actively trust God. We actively talk to God about what's happening. We actively seek his revealed will to give us a bit more insight in how we should react. We learn his revealed will. Then we will obey him. We'll worship him. We'll pray. So why would you pray if God's... Because God's revealed that's how stuff happens. Stuff happens because we pray. He has sovereignly ordained it like that. That we ask and things happen. God is using that means of our response, our choice, our prayer, our faith to achieve things. That's how it works. That's clear. Fifthly, we draw comfort from the sovereignty of God in times of difficulty and suffering. Comfort. So easy for the devil to use it to really trick us. You know, the devil is a deceiver. The devil really is a deceiver. And one of the things about deception is if it's any good, it looks real and you can't tell what's happening. Have you ever been to a a magic show with a conjurer or something where they saw a woman in half? I I bet they can't do it nowadays because of political correctness. You probably can't saw a woman in half, can you? Who could you saw in half? You couldn't saw a child in half? That would be a paedophile or something. You could have child health and safety. I don't know if you could saw anybody in half these days, can you? But anyway, once upon a time you used to be able to saw a woman in half. In the bad old days. So you go along and they saw a woman in half. And it looks as though she's in half. I've seen it. And there's two halves. Her legs are kicking out that half. Her head's wagging and smiling at you that half. And, and then they put her back together again. She comes out. And you think, How do they do that? Perhaps you're not as stupid as me. But, I think, but if it's any good, it looks like they've sawn a woman in half. But you think they can't have sawn a woman in half. But that is how deception works. The devil makes it look as though God is really bad. God is really horrible. God is on your case and he hates you and he's screwing you to the floor. And you think, it really looks like God hates me. But God does not hate you. He loves you. And he is with you. And he he cares for you. And you have to hold to the revealed truth. 
and not allow circumstances and the devil's involvement to deceive you. God doesn't love me. God never turns up for me. And you go in many, many other ways. But that is the nature of deception. There is something you don't understand. That's what the woman sword in half thinks. There's something you don't understand. There's some trickery that you haven't seen in that case. Because you actually can't saw a woman in half without loads of blood all over the thing and she won't be put back together again. But, so, so actually, it's, it's, it's similar. You know, there is something here I don't see, but I am not going to believe that this woman's sawn in half. I'm not going to believe God's a bad God, doesn't care, is random in his circumstances and slaps me about if he feels like it. Because he doesn't. Amen? We have to hold to that. And we draw comfort from that in times of difficulty. God is still in overall control. He's still a good God. He's a loving God. He's a powerful God. He's a wise God. He's a God who's true to his word. He's a God who works all things together for his purposes. But he's a God who's said stuff to us that we must respond to. You know, the devil isn't equal to God. He's not equal. He's a creature. That's a puzzle in itself. But look in the Garden of Eden. When God announced judgment on the devil, the devil didn't argue back like an equal, did he? When God said, the serpent, you're going to be on your belly, and, you know, the seed of the woman will crush your head. Certainly, so we'll see about that. I've got as much power as you. We'll take it on. Right, let's bring it on. We'll see who wins. I mean, the devil didn't respond like that, did he? That was the judgment of the creator. He's a creature. God predicted, if you like, prophesied what would happen. The seed of the woman will crush your head. And he didn't say, ha-ha, he might not. I've got a few tricks up my... He didn't. Of course he didn't. And then when you get to Job, he's a nasty bit of work. But when the devil comes in, he's got to be asked permission. Yeah, Job only follows you because you've blessed him. If you let me touch him, we'd see the difference. If you let me... God, it's not like, hey, I've been beating Job up. He's getting a bit softened up now. No, no. He doesn't even start till he's talked to God. Now, so God is in control. And it's puzzling, but it's our loving Heavenly Father. And we don't let the devil's deception, because he loves it. He did it in the Garden of Eden. He will deceive you till the cows come home. We have to keep clear on the will of God. God is a loving, all-powerful, wise God who cares for us, who knows even the hairs on our head, and cares far more than, if you like, for the sparrows. And he knows us. And we trust him, and we love him. And he's greater than the devil, and he's greater than the circumstances. Amen? And because he is sovereign and in control, he can actually change the circumstances. And hallelujah, he did. He healed Paulette's uh, skin complaint that for two years had not responded to medication. God can do stuff all the time. And actually, some of it he's doing more. He's tempting us in the best possible way to be more bold, to be more in faith, to be moving out. He said, come on, come on, believe me. I can do other things. I can do other things. Okay. Oh, sixth, I think it is. Quick, I'll try and be quick. We know, if we know this truth that only a truly sovereign God can truly love us. If we know that God is truly sovereign, this is what we know, God can truly love us. What do I mean? Well, our rebellion from his authority cannot threaten his purposes or his will or turn him from them. God is able and willing to love the worst sinner and the lowest failure. No circumstances can thwart his love. So we can trust him and obey him, pray to him, and accept his love and his grace and his forgiveness. He who has begun a good work in us will complete it because he is the author and so is the finisher of our faith. That's where we're at. 
a really sovereign God can truly love us and complete the work. Finally then, and it is the finally, what is our response in a sense summed up, I guess, with the seventh point? What is our response to this stuff? Well, I'm going to just read you a verse or two verses from Romans 8. This is one of our responses, brothers and sisters, to this truth this morning. What I'm thinking here is, how do we go out of this place in a moment? We're going to worship and finish with worship for a few minutes, hopefully ten minutes or so. But how do we go out from here? Well, we go out with an attitude of faith and trust. Listen to this. Romans 8, verses 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons... Neither the present nor the future, nor any other powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now sometimes people say, ah, but it doesn't mention you, you can separate yourself. I think it does. It says, neither nor anything else in all creation. Are you in creation? Are you? Are you part of creation? Well, you can't separate yourself then from God's love, you silly twit. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Like saying, my will can override God's will. Oh, you silly little puffed up thingy. Actually, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. And here's one other response. It's faith, it's trust, but it's worship and awe. Worship and awe. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Now there are mysteries, there are many mysteries. I don't want to treat those lightly. I think a lot about these things over the years, of course I do. But my bottom line position is that one that God created all things and they are created and have their being because of his will. He sustains them. And my God is a good God. And I'm going to trust him. I'm going to, by God's grace, keep trusting him, even when I don't always understand what's going on, because he is in control. Amen? Amen. Let's have the musicians up again. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord.